fact, one in four women will experience domestic violence during her lifetime. Fact, every year more than three million children witness domestic violence in their homes. Fact, domestic violence knows no boundaries. It can happen to anyone, regardless of gender, race, ethnicity, orientation, or socioeconomic status. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. Domestic violence in New York City is reportedly up. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office says it saw a 7% increase in domestic violence arrests and a 36% spike in indictments from 2009 to 2010. On this morning, Cityscape, we're shining a light on the dark subject of domestic violence. Ami Patel works right here in the Bronx as the Director of Clinical Programs for Sanctuary for Families. The organization provides a wide range of services to domestic violence survivors and their children. Ami, good morning. Thank you for having me, George. First of all, tell us about Sanctuary for Families. Sure. So Sanctuary for Families was founded 25 years ago, and it's the largest nonprofit in New York State devoted exclusively to domestic violence survivors and their children, as well as survivors of sex trafficking. We have about nine sites throughout the city, our main site being in Manhattan. And what we do is uh, provide sort of a three-pronged service approach to clients. We provide clinical services, uh, legal services, and um, shelter services. How long have you been with the organization? Um, I've been with Sanctuary for about eight and a half years. Anything in particular surprise you about the work that you do about domestic violence survivors in general? I guess not so much surprise me about the work that I do, but I think more about how Um, Little people are aware of the issue of domestic violence, um, whether it's in New York City or just generally speaking. I think there's a lot of myths out there about domestic violence, and I think that there's a lot of times people sort of fall into those and and believe them. What do you think are the biggest myths? Um, I think a few of the biggest myths about domestic violence are that it happens to a certain group of people when we really know that it happens to people across racial, cultural, ethnic, socioeconomic, um, and class boundaries. And it really can happen to anybody. It can be happening in the apartments next door. Absolutely. Just because you don't hear loud fights or just because there isn't a physical result of the abuse, say bruises or cuts or things like that, doesn't mean that it's not happening. There's a lot of different types of abuse, right, that people aren't necessarily aware of. So let me ask you this question as well, because I think a lot of people, if they do hear those loud fights, they don't Mm -hmm. know when to get involved or they're afraid to get involved. What's your advice there? I always had to say to give advice, but I just think that, you know, it's about following your instincts. So if you feel like something isn't quite right, it never hurts to call the police. If you think someone's in danger, it's absolutely fine. You know, if you have some sort of suspicion or some thought about something not quite being right, it's okay to reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Um, I would necessarily, I would definitely advise not to speak with the uh, alleged perpetrator of the abuse because that can only heighten the danger for the person who's being abused. I think it's really important to keep that in mind. I want to talk more specifically now about how kids are impacted by domestic violence. How are kids who hear and see domestic violence affected? I think they're affected in a lot of different ways. I mean, the most important thing to keep in mind is that trauma reactions for adults and children are very much the same. You know, children often experience things like nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive thoughts. They have difficulty concentrating. Um, They may, you know, change their, see changes in their eating and sleeping habits, things like that. But the difference is that they don't have the tools and language to really process the trauma in the way that adults do. Do you find that kids often blame themselves for the violence in the family? Absolutely. I think I would say the majority of the kids that come through our doors for counseling think it's their fault somehow that mom and dad are fighting, think that it's, they've done something to cause it. 
you know, and it's really important to keep in mind that the trauma reactions aren't so obvious. So kids can be affected emotionally, cognitively, behaviorally without seeming so overt. Do they lose trust in adults? Yeah, I think to some degree they definitely do because, you know, these are the um, adults in their lives that are supposed to be protecting them and taking care of them. And, you know, a lot of times clients will say that, you know, the the perpetrator never really abused the children, only the um, intimate partner. But the thing is, if someone's abusing the mother of their children, in some ways those children are definitely being impacted, right? So even indirectly, there's some form of emotional or um, physical abuse going on. I've read that children who live in households where there is domestic violence going on grow up quicker because they now become the caregivers to the person being abused, whether that's the mom or dad. Absolutely. I think that we see that children are impacted in they sort of go in two directions, right? One is that they may regress um, in certain ways. So they might sort of go back to stages that they've already passed in their in their growth and development, like bedwetting or thumb sucking, things like that. And the other end is that they become parentified. That's a word that we use in that they feel like they've already they need to sort of assume responsibility, whether it's emotionally or physically, for other siblings, for their mom to protect them, because it's their way of trying to find some sense of control in the situation. And yeah, absolutely, we see that a lot. Do you find that kids are often afraid to tell someone else? They go to school every day. Are they afraid to tell a teacher, you know, this is what's going on in my house? Yeah, I I absolutely do. I think that, you know, it's really scary because, again, when we talk about that guilt that they're feeling, they also then might feel guilty that they broke up the family if they do tell. Or they're told at home, don't say anything to anyone because there's so much shame still around the issue of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. And so I think that they begin to internalize some of that and feel like, I I just need to keep quiet. I can't tell anyone anything because I don't know what might happen. Ami, thank you so much for coming in. Sure. Thank you so much, George. Ami Patel is with Sanctuary for Families. You can find them online at sanctuaryforfamilies.org. A lot of people turn to yoga to rejuvenate their mind, body, and spirit. Advocates for domestic violence survivors say yoga can be an important part of the healing process. Jennifer Cohen Harper is the founder of Little Flower Yoga. Little Flower partners with Sanctuary for Families to provide yoga classes to women and children who've escaped abusive households. Jennifer, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How can yoga help someone who's been subjected to domestic violence? Um, Thanks so much for asking. In in so many ways, we work with both adults, women, and children who are survivors of domestic violence. For the kids, um, one of the primary things that we do is create a safe space where they're free to experience some joy um, and give them an experience in their bodies where they feel alive and powerful and that their bodies are something positive, something that they can achieve with. Um, This isn't something that can happen through talk therapy alone when you are talking with kids and tell them that they're wonderful and tell them that they can achieve. Um, It doesn't quite have the same effect as when they experience it, and that's what we do in the classes with kids. So for someone Uh, unfamiliar with yoga, help to explain what is actually going on in the process that helps in that way. Sure. Um, In the children's classes, what we are doing is creating a group environment where the kids are moving through yoga poses, mindfulness and breathing activities, and also cooperative activities and partner poses, like cooperative games. Um, We move through a series where the kids start off experiencing some relaxation techniques and breathing techniques that help them reduce anxiety, reduce stress, and come to a centered state in their body. And then we move on to activities that 
are more energizing and more community-based that give them a sense of strength in their own bodies, standing poses, things that feel challenging in the body, but also generate a sense of strength and stability. And then we do partner activities and group activities where kids are learning to support each other and work together. We also do partner activities between parents and children. And when you are talking about women and children who have been living in an environment of violence, it's really important to encourage them, especially the kids, to find ways of interacting and ways of communicating that are nonviolent. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, George. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. Muslim women who are victims of domestic abuse often face both religious and cultural challenges in seeking help. Speaking about marital issues is often seen as attacking Islam in the Muslim community. Cityscape's Maureen Chin takes a closer look at the issue. Sarah is a 34-year-old woman living in Queens. She asked that we withhold her last name. Sarah moved to New York from Sudan with her husband soon after they married. She says it wasn't long before he became abusive. Back home, he looked different, as if he's wearing a mask. I married him as a man that migrated to help his poor family. But when I came here and through time, I, I find that, no, he's not like that. He's uh, just abuser. Sarah pleaded with her husband to stop the abuse, but she says he refused to communicate with her. He choked me. He choked me in front of my kids and throwing food in front of the kids and breaking the furniture. And uh, this is your life. This is your life, being uh, in an abusive situation. At first, Sarah says she wasn't aware of the word abuse and didn't know what her rights were. She says her husband isolated her. He cut off the telephone lines, prevented her from using a computer, and prohibited friends and family from visiting. Sarah says she even lost track of when the abuse started. They don't remember, and why I remember? Because this affects my memory, too. The abuse affects my memory. Because pressure, 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 and isolated, and I, more isolated, and more isolated. According to a study from Oakland University, domestic violence in the Muslim community is about 18 percent, a rate comparable to the national average, but given the taboo nature of the subject, Sarah says many Muslim women are reluctant to speak up. Their culture and their religions support the idea of obeying the husband, sacrificing for the family, and you know, our culture also is not nice to go and talk about the bad thing your husband doing. Imam Khalid Latif is the executive director for the Islamic Center at New York University. He's also the chaplain for the school as well as for the city's police department. He says Islam does not condone violence against women. Islam very adamantly prohibits domestic violence. You know, it very adamantly prohibits forced marriages and, you know, an abundance of things that take place in communities where there are Muslims uh, who are unfortunately doing things that are not Islamic. Latif says religious texts have been misinterpreted, and he admits that could lead to domestic violence. You can find individuals who would take a simple verse or a quote and derive completely polar opposite meanings and interpretations from that verse. Are there people in our community who believe that uh, religion justifies ill treatment of women? There definitely are, and I think we have to be able to acknowledge that because our failure to acknowledge it then puts us in a place where we're not really dismantling the problem at its base. 
we have to be able to offer, I would say, more sound and correct interpretations, deeper interpretations, and utilize our text to point an idea of female empowerment that exists within them. New York City has worked to reach out to families to combat these issues. Queens Councilwoman Jalissa Ferreras chairs the Women's Issues Committee. We're actively reaching out to the Muslim community so that we can help hear the voices of these women. There's a great organization called Connect, who I fund in my district, and they specifically have been working on reaching out to the South Asian community and just letting them know there is help out there. You don't have to take this type of abuse. However, Ferreras says many Muslim women don't call for help, fearing they'll be told to divorce their husbands. What I have found is that they feel that, you know, a woman that wants to get a divorce it's a very big no-no within the culture. And unfortunately, these women feel that if they go to the mosque, the type of advice that they would get or, or the support system is not the same or the average of any other New York woman where you would be able to call 311 or go to sanctuary for families or go to a family justice center. Activists stress the importance of centers catering specifically to the needs of Muslim women. Robina Nias founded the organization Turning Point for Women and Families after escaping her own abusive marriage. What makes it difficult for Muslim women to come out and ask for help is many of them are new immigrants, have language barriers, have cultural barriers, and the backlash of 9-11, which has really trapped them in situations where they are often hesitant to seek help. This gives them another tool saying, well, you know what, Muslim community is already in danger, they're already in trouble, and, you know, if, if you try and report or seek legal help, it means more trouble. But Sarah stresses just the opposite is true, and she urges women to... Speak up. Don't say this is culture or this is religion. Speak up. Take everything out. People will correct you if you are wrong, okay? Because some sometimes we believe that and things that uh, which are wrong, and we don't know that they are wrong, unless we uh, share this to uh, each other, okay? And many educated people, Muslim women are uh, out there. Getting away from the abuse, Sarah says, is necessary, but she urges women to have a plan first. Sarah and her kids now live in a shelter, but she says they're not happy there. So plan, plan, leaving the husband is not an easy thing. I'm Marlene Shin for Cityscape. Studies suggest there are nearly as many male victims of domestic violence as there are female victims. As WFUV's Sarah Kugel reports, male victims often struggle to find help because support services commonly cater only to women victims of abuse. The New York Asian Women's Center is located in an undisclosed suite on an upper floor of a nondescript building in Lower Manhattan. Director Larry Lee says keeping locations discreet is important. Well, and with a domestic violence agency, uh, there's always concerns uh, about the batterer uh, trying to locate women and in also in trying to, uh, to hurt staff. So people are very concerned about that. So we keep it confidential, uh, even the administrative office. You'd be hard-pressed to locate a similar organization for male victims, but for a different reason. Not many exist. According to a Department of Justice study, about 40 percent of all domestic violence victims are men. Nationwide, there are over 2,000 services for female victims of domestic violence, but only a handful make services available to both women and men. Doug Eldridge can attest to that. He's an electrician and father of three who, after being abused by his wife, struggled to find help for years. She was 
you know, more physically abusive, hitting hitting me in front of the kids sometimes. Um, there was one incident where I woke up and she was hitting me in the head with a CD player. Eldridge says he suspects there are a lot more male victims than statistics show because it's a hard thing to talk about. There is other men out there and, you know, they, they, it's like it's almost like a double shame because, you know, you're feeling the shame of being beaten in the first place, but then being a man that's being beaten by a woman, you know, is like a double kicker, you know, because society tells you that, you know, you're supposed to be the assertive and aggressive one. Eldred stayed in the relationship for about five years. He says he looked for help but couldn't find any. The female-run organizations that are in my area, who of course have all the funding and stuff like that, you know, they were very unwilling to help me and... They actually were trying to get rid of me from coming to ask them for help so bad that they started threatening me in order to get rid of me so that I wouldn't stop, That because they wouldn't help me, but I kept asking them for help. Jan Brown is the executive director of the Domestic Abuse Helpline for Men and Women, one of the few resources in the country that specializes in working with men abused by women. According to Brown, her hotline gets about 850 calls a month from men all over the nation. She says that's proof society's view on domestic violence needs to change. The attention should be on the abuse. Bottom line, who, who's abused? First come, first serve. You know, in my opinion, it shouldn't be because women are the majority, we have to pay all the attention and and give all the services to women. It should be for everybody. As for Doug Eldridge, he says he's doing well. He now has full custody of his three young children. His now ex-wife has been diagnosed with alcoholism and depression and is receiving help. For Cityscape, I'm Sarah Kugel. It's not always easy to recognize abuse in a relationship. Questions over where you've been or who you just phoned could be mistaken for caring. The Center Against Domestic Violence here in New York City works to steer kids away from abusive relationships later in life. They do that through their Relationship Abuse Prevention Program. With us this morning is Liz Lasky. She's an Intermediate School Relationship Abuse Prevention Program Coordinator with the Center Against Domestic Violence. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Mark Silverman. He's an Intermediate and High School Relationship Abuse Prevention Program Coordinator. Mark, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, George. Good morning. Now, I guess I can shorten that to RAP for short, right? Yep. Relationship yes. Abuse Prevention Program, RAP. Yes, it's a lot simpler. <laughs> what does your job entail, Liz? We actually have quite a multifaceted job. We get to do a lot of really great things in the school. Mainly, we're there for counseling, group counseling, and workshops to educate kids about different types of relationships and to promote healthy relationships. And we also have parent outreach and community outreach where we get to go to different parts of the community and also educate about healthy relationships. Mark, I think a lot of people, Mm -hmm. when they think of abusive relationships, they don't think young people at all. Do you hear that a lot? Sometimes I do. But when you really look at it, it does highly involve young people because when you look at the middle school and high school populations, that's when they start dating. That's when they start having relationships. So really during that time, that's really when the vulnerability opens up and maybe some of the patterns come in place. So Liz, you're trying to nip things in the bud Mm -hmm. so they don't progress and later in life you have an adult who is an abuser. 
Yeah, and that's essentially, you know, the the greater point of our prevention program. But I think I look at my job really as planting seeds for kids and just sort of planting seeds about how to think critically about your own relationship. How do you do that? Well, a lot of it comes from workshops that we do. We do a three-curriculum workshop in classrooms where we educate about different types of abuse, about personal boundaries, and also about sexual harassment. So we want to get kids thinking about the kinds of relationships that they're in and why they're choosing to be in the relationships that they're in. What are the warning signs that you're in an abusive relationship, Mark? Well, I think one of the main warning signs, even before physical abuse surfaces would be, if we were to take an example of, say, like a seventh grade male and a seventh grade female who start dating, one of the major signs is if one partner were to control who their partner chooses to hang out with, when they can hang out with that person. Um, Like a lot of the times, students say they um, they bring up cell phone use and their partner checking the cell phone. So those are really the beginning signs before the physical and really the heavy emotional stuff come into place. How many schools are you working with here in New York City? The program in general? Yeah. We have, I believe, about 65 schools total. Yeah, that's right. We have about 30 campuses, mm-hmm. and per campus we have multiple schools. Yeah, because, yes, because a lot of those schools are breaking down to what we call mini schools. So, for example, my school has about six different schools within, in, on one campus. How frequently do victims try to stand up for their partner, to defend their partner? Is that common? The dynamic of what they call the cycle of abuse really starts out as in a honeymoon phase where everybody's really getting along. So everybody's lovey-dovey. Everyone in the relationship is having a great time. They're going out. They're enjoying each other's company. And then they might have an argument. And then after the argument, it'll go back to the honeymoon phase. And perhaps the perpetrator will say, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I can't believe I did that to you. I really apologize. And then they make up. And then it goes back into another violent episode. And it goes back to the honeymoon phase and back to the violent episode. But what keeps happening in the cycle of violence is the violent episodes become greater and more severe. Liz, you said this earlier. These are difficult issues for adults to wrap their heads around. I can't imagine being 12, 13, 14 years old having to deal with these kinds of issues. must make your job that much more interesting and challenging. (laughs) Absolutely. We have a wonderful program. And uh, because of the city budget cuts, Mm -hmm. our program is actually on the chopping block. Entirely. Entirely. Yes. And... One of the things that I think is so heartbreaking about this is we have a very inexpensive program. It only costs $3 million to run our program, Mm -hmm. and we reach 60,000 children. It really isn't a lot of money. The Center Against Domestic Mm -hmm. Violence also goes into elementary schools in New York City, right? Yes, we have one elementary school, and, you know, our philosophy is it is never too early to start learning about these kinds of things and to address these kinds of issues. I mean, we love a rap program in every school in the city, and the younger that we start, the better 
because we get kids thinking about healthy relationships. Liz, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Mark, thank you. Thank you, George. That was Liz Lasky and Mark Silverman. They're both Relationship Abuse Prevention Program Coordinators with the Center Against Domestic Violence. Learn more at cadvny.org. As we said at the top of the show, domestic violence knows no boundaries. According to the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs, domestic violence among same-sex partners is on the rise. Cityscape's Andrea McCreary takes a look at the barriers that often stand in the way of victims to get help. Tim is a survivor of domestic violence. That's not his real name. He wants to remain anonymous and asked us to call him Tim for the purpose of this story. Tim is gay, and he says the abuse from his now ex-partner began verbally, but then things turned physical. I actually was quite amazed because it would be like a light switch, sometimes in public and sometimes and, and at home, it didn't make any difference. Tim says he tried to escape the abuse. He changed the locks, but he gave in to his partner's crying pleas from the hallway. Tim says this became a pattern in his relationship. At the third time, he threatened that if I changed the locks back, he would kill me. And he did try to kill me on tri- two different occasions, once with overdosing on a drug that I was given. And that was, a, that was an odd thing. And physically, physically, yeah, physically. The National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs releases an annual report on the state of domestic violence in the LGBTQ community nationwide. The latest report shows LGBTQ domestic and intimate partner violence reports have risen by 15 percent since 2008, and the murder rate associated with domestic violence cases in the LGBTQ community is up 50 percent since 2007. What that means is the violence is getting more and more severe. So the lethality or the chances that this violence will be lethal towards someone is the the numbers seem to be getting higher and higher. And that's of obvious concern to the local anti-violence programs that are working directly on these issues throughout the country. That's Sharon Staple, the executive director of the New York City Anti-Violence Project. The group provides services for LGBTQ victims of domestic abuse. She says LGBTQ victims still face challenges in seeking help. There can be an obstacle just in how someone asks a question or how someone advertises their services or how someone talks about what violence is that makes LGBTQ people think, oh, well, that service doesn't apply to me because I'm not any of those things, and so therefore I can't access that service. That's in addition to the institutionalized discrimination and and bias that folks feel very legitimately because the laws of this state have not always included LGBTQ people. But that changed in New York in 2008. The definition of what types of relationships were recognized in instances of domestic violence was expanded to include same-sex partners. Virginia Goggin is a staff attorney at the LGBT Law Project at the New York Legal Assistance Group, a nonprofit law office that provides free legal services to low-income New Yorkers. Goggin says, though the laws in New York have changed to include LGBTQ people, it doesn't mean the problems they faced were dissolved. There aren't necessarily barriers in the law, but there are, I guess, cultural competency barriers for either LGBT folks coming into the court feeling comfortable or the court personnel, judges, etc., respecting and treating the parties in a you know, an educated way. 
Goggins says she hears a lot of stories of police officers responding inappropriately to domestic violence cases involving LGBTQ people. There are officers who are fabulous, and you know I think a lot of them have cultural competency training. But I do hear often when people call the police, they come and the response is not as good as it should be. The cops have to come and decide who is the primary aggressor. And because it's a same-sex relationship, oftentimes they just can't figure it out and they can't deal with it. Kathy Ryan is a chief with the New York City Police Department's Domestic Violence Unit. She says these instances are the exception rather than the rule. Ryan says new recruits are trained to handle diverse instances of domestic violence and to be sensitive to different types of relationships. But she doesn't entirely dismiss the criticism that NYPD sometimes gets in handling LGBTQ cases of domestic violence. That could be a newer officer that this is something that, that he or she is unfamiliar with. But we do try to train, and training, there's never enough training, and we're consistent on always, again, reiterating and doing the roll call training and then the specialized training. Tim says he has a lot of respect for the NYPD, but he thinks it's hard for some officers to understand domestic violence between two men. In the end, Tim got help. He got an order of protection and took his case to family court. But when it came down to it, he had to leave his apartment and relocate to feel safe. Tim offers some advice for anyone who may be going through what he did. Do not ignore your instincts. Because my instincts, you know, I, I didn't have red flags wave. I had a flagpole hitting me in the head. But I ignored all these signs, the warning signs of somebody telling you about these violent relationships. And if, you cha and if your instincts tell you to change the locks, <laughs> don't change them back. Yeah, all that stuff I understand now in hindsight, but I certainly didn't I certainly didn't get it in real time, did I? Tim says he feels safe in his new home. He's now going to counseling, which he says is helping a lot. For Cityscape, I'm Andrea McCrary. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Andrea McCrary and producer Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. <laughs>